do. Well, you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We're continuing in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, this wonderful sermon that our Savior gave, full of so much truth, full of wonderful instruction in what it is to live in the kingdom. A kingdom is a place where a king reigns, the king being Jesus, under the ultimate king, his father. And the kingdom is a place where Jesus' reign is experienced. It's where we experience his reign, where we consciously and voluntarily and gladly submit to him as king. That's the kingdom of God. When he talks about the kingdom coming, he means his reign, his reign experience. And, and there's a, a part of that has already come with his, his life, his death, his resurrection, and he will return to finish it. So the kingdom is here already. And so this Sermon on the Mount is given to us as his people that we might learn what it is to live in the kingdom. What does it look like to be part of the kingdom, to walk in the kingdom ethics, the way of living of the kingdom? And this sermon is just so rich as we go through and learn about this radical way of living that really is an impossibility if we don't know the king, if we don't know his grace, and we don't know his lordship. It's really uh, it's an impossibility apart from His power in our lives. So as we come to His Word, we recognize we need Him to speak to us. We need His power to understand these things. We need His power to live in them. And He's a gracious King. He wants to help us. So let's go to Him and ask in prayer for His help as we look at His Word and learn from Him this morning. Lord, thank You for the kingdom that has come. And it's coming and will one day soon come in its completeness. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the gracious King. You have lived and died for our sins and you have been raised from the dead to new life, that we might know new life. Lord, thank you so much that the kingdom is a reality for us because of you. And Lord, how we need your life, how we need your rule and reign and your grace. So would you come and help us right now? Thank you that we're forgiven and you welcome us into your presence because of this. And now we ask you to send the Spirit and fill us and lead us that we might hear from you, we might learn from you, Lord, and we might walk in your kingdom ways, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 18. Jesus is continuing to teach on how to walk in our spiritual deeds in a way that is characteristic of the kingdom. And so this section, he's speaking on fasting. And he says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Matthew 6, 16-18. Jesus is speaking on fasting. Fasting is somewhat of an uncommon spiritual activity for us. So there's a lot that I want to talk about today to help us understand what fasting is. Fasting is really a gift from God. God gives us this, this practice of fasting as a gift. It's a blessing from God 
to help us to seek and enjoy him and his true reward. Fasting is a gift, a blessing from God to help us to seek and enjoy him and his true reward. It's not very common, though, for us. Uh, It seems a little bit foreign to us. There's this wonderful promise, though, of, of a reward in fasting. So why don't we do it more? Well, I'm going to talk about that. But before we go on, let's just get a general idea of how common fasting is. And let me uh, do this in a way where you don't feel uh, self-conscious. You're not afraid of losing your reward for fasting. But I want to ask you, if you know somebody who has ever fasted in their life, if you could just raise your hand. Good. So most of you. Do you know somebody? Keep your hands up. Do you know somebody, uh, if you know somebody who has fasted within the past month, keep your hand up. Good. If you know somebody who's fasted in the past week, keep your hand up. Okay. Well, that's great. More, more than I necessarily would expect. It's not very common. Now, if I were to ask that, do you know somebody who's ever prayed in their whole life? We'd all put our hands up. Nobody who's prayed in the last month, all put our hands up. Last week, I think we'd just about all put our hands up. Prayer is very common, but fasting is very uncommon. It's not a common thing for us. And it, it kind of seems weird to us, I think, in some ways. I don't know. In some of our minds, we might put fasting up there with, with other practices like self-whipping, you know, sitting on top of a pole or doing crazy things like the guy who went into North Korea with his Bible, just walked across the border, or those people that preach on street corners or walk around in sackcloth and sandals. I mean, fasting is like one of those things, kind of the, the X games of Christianity, you know, for the really crazy ones. They do stuff like fast and all these other things. But it's interesting, in this passage, Jesus starts out by saying, and when you fast. And there are three different practices that he's talking about here. There's giving to the poor, there's prayer and fasting that he's teaching on. And he's teaching on these because they're so common. And they're commonly used as a way to bring praise of men to ourselves. He's seeking to correct this tendency of doing these things to impress others rather than for true reward. And in that culture at that time, fasting was common. The Pharisees fasted twice a week, two days out of the week. Now, I don't know if they did a whole day fast, but it was common. It was, it was a regular thing to fast. And so Jesus could say in his culture, and when you fast, when you do these other common things like prayer and giving, and when you fast, you need to have this in mind. But for us, it's not that common. It's interesting, it says, and when you fast. It doesn't say if you fast. If you ever fast, do this. But when you fast. Clearly, from what the Lord says here, and I would submit from the entirety of Scripture, fasting is to be a common occurrence. Almost as common as prayer, perhaps. Not that you would fast every time you pray. But it's to be a regular, common experience. But if you're like me, It isn't. And as I've prepared this week, I've been convicted that this is not as common in my life as it should be. And what I want to do today is talk about fasting. And then I want to talk about this particular scripture and what it teaches us about fasting, because there is a particular point in this passage. But really, in order to even address that particular point, we need to back up with just addressing those first few words, and when you fast, and to learn about what it looks like and why we should regularly fast. What I want to do in doing this is explain fasting, but I also want to motivate us to fast. 
I think that part of why we maybe haven't been motivated to fast is because it just seems kind of extreme. And then maybe the other side of it is that fasting perhaps was understood in the past as a, a way of suffering to merit God's favor somehow, to somehow maybe atone for our sins or earn God's favor. And really, that's, that's not what fasting is biblically. So maybe in our minds we think, you know, this is either crazy or it's about earning God's favor some way. And I don't live like that. I live by grace. Yes, indeed we do. But fasting is not meant to be something where we earn God's favor, where we suffer somehow to pay for our sins. It is a means of grace. It's a gift from God for our good. And my desire and prayer as we go through this today is that at the end of all this, we would hear the invitation from God to receive this gift and enjoy it for the good that it accomplishes. And I hope from that to see fasting be a regular practice in our lives as a church. So let's go through a little bit and talk about fasting, what it is and how it's done in the, in the Scriptures. And I'm indebted to uh, Donald Whitney in his excellent book on the uh, disciplines of the Christian life, his chapter on fasting. Much of this material comes from his chapter, an excellent chapter. I think that's on our book uh, shelf as well. Fasting, what is it? Well, it is a gift, as I said, but it is a Christian's voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. It's a voluntary abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. It's a Christian practice. It is to have God at the center. It is to be dependent on the grace that is ours in Christ. It is a Christian practice. It is a voluntary practice. It's not to be coerced. It's not required in that way. It's to be voluntary. And it's not just not eating food to lose weight or something like that. This fasting isn't, fasting generally speaking can be part of how you lose weight, but, but biblical fasting does not have the point of losing weight or having a crash diet. It's really for spiritual purposes. It's for spiritual purposes. So it's a Christian's voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. The heart of fasting is a longing after God. The heart behind fasting is a longing after God to know God, to enjoy God, to glorify God, to see His purposes accomplished. The heart is a longing after God. Really, fasting is hunger for God. That's the title of the message, fasting, a hunger for God. It's a, it's a hunger for God expressed through this practice of fasting. It's an expression of faith. The same faith that the Lord gives us, the same faith described in Hebrews 11, chapter 11, verse 6, where it says anyone who comes to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. True faith believes that God is the ultimate reality, the ultimate reality behind all things. He exists, and and that... uh, that statement isn't meaning that he just is. He happens to be. It's, it's more than that. It's, he is the I am. He's the ultimate reality. He is. So faith is knowing that he is. He's above all things. He's the ultimate reality. And that he's good. He's the rewarder of those who seek him. So fasting is an expression of that. Saying, God, I long for you, the one who is, and the one who's good. And I want your good reward. So it's a seeking after Him and His reward, knowing that He rewards those who seek Him. So it's an expression of that faith. Andrew Murray, uh, the South African, I think he was a pastor and theologian, 
says, fasting helps, I think we have this to show, fasting helps to express, to deepen, and to confirm the resolution that we are ready to sacrifice anything, even ourselves, to attain the kingdom of God. And Jesus, who himself fasted and sacrificed, knows to value, accept, and reward with spiritual power the soul that is thus ready to give up everything for him and his kingdom. It's saying, Lord, Your kingdom come. Your will be done. I want you and I want your ways more than anything, more than food itself, more than life itself. I want you. That's what fasting is about. There are different types of fasts in Scripture. There is what's called a normal fast. And a normal fast is abstaining from all food but not water. And we see this in Scripture. Jesus himself did a normal fast for 40 days. That's an incredible amount of time, but... It says in Matthew 4, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. It doesn't say anything about not drinking water. You can uh, Normally, the human body can only last three days without water. So the normal fast, you're still drinking fluids, but you're abstaining from food. And so in that, that instance, Jesus was doing a normal fast. He ate nothing during those days. There's also a partial fast that we see in Scripture. Daniel and his three... Uh, Friends practiced a partial fast. They abstained from the meat offered to them that probably was offered to idols and only ate vegetables and water, drank water. Uh, John the Baptist survived on locusts and wild honey. There there can be a partial fast where we abstain from food for partial amounts of food. Maybe we just drink fruit juices or something like that. A partial fast where you abstain from a certain degree of food. There is also in Scripture an absolute fast. That's where you don't have any food or any water. Now, that's a pretty extreme fast, and the, the normal occurrences of that don't last more than three days for obvious reasons. And so we see uh, in Scripture Ezra, he had a, a normal fast, I mean, an absolute fast. It, it says in Ezra 10, he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. Esther, when, when she was going before the king, what was in, in the book of Esther, her, the whole Jewish people were threatened with annihilation. And they sought the Lord. Uh, she was going to go into the king and make an appeal that, that he do some things to save the Jewish people. And so they called an absolute fast for three days. Uh, and then she went in to see the king. The apostle Paul, when he was uh, coming to Christ, when he came to Christ in Acts 9, he says for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So there's an absolute fast. It's a very serious fast. And by the way, we'll talk about this at the end. Uh, we need to be aware of, of these different fasts, and we need to be aware of what our bodies can take. For some of us, uh, we cannot do certain types of fasts. So we, I want to put that caveat out there that you understand that you need to be mindful of what your own body can endure. Uh, for some of us, we're not able to do this. But we see this in, uh, in Paul and the book of Esther and Ezra. There's also supernatural fasts. There are fasts that are clearly uh, some, something that God works in somebody to be able to do. Moses goes up to the mountain, and he's there 40 days and 40 nights, and he says in Deuteronomy 9, I ate no bread and drank no water for 40 days and 40 nights. There's just no way humanly, naturally possible to go 40 days and 40 nights without water. So somehow God sustained him supernaturally. It looks like Elijah did one of those as well, and a supernatural fast that is not repeatable apart from God's miraculous intervention. Don't try a supernatural fast on your own, okay? Um, 
unless you get some major revelation and you have a lot of reliable friends who confirm it. And most likely that's just not going to happen. So in case you're thinking of doing a supernatural fast, let me, let me give you that little important bit of information. Um, in Scripture, too, there are private fasts and congregational fasts. So Jesus in Matthew 6 is talking about private fasts. He's not saying that to the exclusion of congregational fasts. There are fasts that are done as a whole church or the people of God. Joel 2, it says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly. In Joel 2, there's this call to God's people to have a corporate fast together to fast. And that's very different than a private one. So Jesus isn't speaking of that necessarily in Matthew 6. A corporate fast. There's, and we see that throughout Scripture. These corporate fasts. And the church in Antioch, before they send... Uh, actually, while they're, they're having a corporate fast, the Lord speaks to them about Barnabas and Saul to be sent off on the missionary work. They, they, it says that while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. And then there, there are national fasts in Israel. And actually, as a country, we have practiced national fasts, too. I don't think they're too common now, but at the beginning of our country, uh, there were three national fasts. John Adams called one and James Madison, and three among them. And then Abraham Lincoln, during the, the war between the states, the Civil War, called, I think, three different national fasts. Um, so there is this idea of, of a national fast. And then there, in Scripture for the people of God in Israel, there was a regular fast every year on the Day of Atonement, the day where atonement was made for their sins. There was to be a fasting. Again, it's not very common today. Uh, John Wesley, though, is known he would not ordain a minister within the Methodist Church unless you regularly fasted every week. Uh, every Wednesday and Friday, I guess, was their practice. So uh, just an example of, of the regularity maybe we had at one point in fasting. So these are the different types of fasts. You can see there's all different types all different ways to fast, and it's a very common thing in Scripture. Well, well, why fast? I think we've talked about the general reason, but there are a number of reasons, and actually in Don Whitney's book that he has like six or seven, I have no time to cover all those, but they're all related to just a few that I want to cover. First, we fast to strengthen prayer. Fasting is connected to prayer. It's connected to prayer. And there's something about fasting that sharpens the edge of our prayer. It gives us passion. And so in Scripture you see when there's something that's urgent, frequently the people of God will fast and pray because of the urgency of what's happening, because they know they need the Lord. And so they fast to seek the Lord, to set their hearts on God. They fast to complement their prayer. To seek the Lord, to express their earnestness to the Lord. Now, it's not done as some sort of hunger strike to get God to move. That's not the idea. Somehow, if I go without food long enough, eventually God will, will hear me and, you know, be like a hunger strike. That's not the point. The point is the expression of our hearts and our earnestness to God, to, to complement our prayers, to, to, to bolster, to add passion, to express to the Lord our earnestness. Really, our fasting is the expression of our hearts, just like when we pray and speak words in our prayer. We're expressing to the Lord our desire, our need for Him, our dependence on Him, our longing for Him. Arthur Wallace, the British pastor, says, Fasting is calculated to bring a note of urgency and 
importunity into our praying and to give force to our pleading in the court of heaven. The man who prays with fasting is giving heaven notice that he is truly in earnest. Not only so, but he is expressing his earnestness in a divinely appointed way. He is using a means that God has chosen to make his voice be heard on high. God is pleased to listen to the prayers of his people, and he is pleased to listen to his people as they fast and pray and seek him. We see again in Scripture this purpose throughout. I mentioned Antioch, the church in Antioch, a wonderful church full of the life of God through the gospel, full of grace. God was doing so much in Antioch, and apparently they regularly fasted and prayed. And it speaks of a time where they were fasting and praying and worshiping the Lord. And it was in that context that God said, set apart for me Paul, Saul and Barnabas for the purpose I have for them. And so they, they did. And then they again fasted and prayed and placed their hands on Barnabas and Saul and sent them off. And what did God do through them? Amazing, really history-changing things. They prayed, they, they, they sought the Lord for Barnabas and Saul. So they fasted and prayed and sent them off. This is a wonderful means of grace that God has given us, and He invites us to use it to sharpen, to deepen our prayers. Wallace, Arthur Wallace again says, in giving us the privilege of fasting as well as praying, God has added a powerful weapon to our spiritual armory. In her folly and ignorance, the church has largely looked down upon it as obsolete. She has thrown it down in some dark corner to rust, and there has lain forgotten for centuries. An hour of impending crisis for the church and the world demands its recovery. God's given us this powerful means of grace to pray. Fasting. We, related to this, can fast as we seek God's guidance. Again, we have that instance in Acts 14. David Brainerd was a a missionary to the Indians, one of the first, uh, actually one of the first missionaries to bring the gospel to the Native Americans without asking them to adopt English ways. He went into the tribe and just loved them, related to them, shared Christ with them. And and God worked through him in a, a marvelous way. And he was a man who fasted and prayed. And as he prepared for his ministry, he wrote this in his journal. It's a a great experience to read through this man's journals. He said, I set apart this day, April 19, 1742, for fasting and prayer to God for His grace. Especially to prepare me for the work of the ministry, to give me divine aid and direction in my preparations for that great work. And it is in His own time to send me into His harvest. And He said of that day, I felt the power of intercession for precious immortal souls. For the advancement of the kingdom of my dear Lord and Savior in the world. And with all a most sweet resignation and even consolation and joy in the thoughts of suffering hardships, distresses, and even death itself and the promotion of it, my soul was drawn out very much for the world, for multitudes of souls. I think I had more enlargement for sinners than for the children of God, though I felt as if I could spend my life in cries for both. I enjoyed great sweetness in communion with my dear Savior. I think I never felt in my life such an entire weanedness from this world and so much resigned to God in everything. As he sought the Lord in prayer and fasting, God visited him, met him, and led him 
And you can read about his life and the impact it had. So we fast as we pray, seeking God's guidance, knowing we need him to lead and provide. Also in Scripture, it is something that's practiced to express repentance and a return to God. It can signal to God and communicate to God our commitment to a new direction and to obedience. It can be a very fitting way to say, Lord, I am sorry for my sins. I'm sorry for how I've lived and what I've done. And and now as I fast and pray before you, I'm saying, Lord, I want to be all yours. I want to live for you and your ways. We see in Scripture, Joel 2, God calls, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your hearts with fasting and weeping and mourning. In the book of Jonah, Jonah comes and preaches to the Ninevites. Forty days more, and the Lord will judge Nineveh. And it says in, in Jonah chapter 3, it says, And the people of Nineveh believed God when Jonah, when Jonah preached to them. That's actually why Jonah didn't want to go. He didn't like the Ninevites. He didn't want them to repent. So that's why he didn't want to go there. Eventually he did go there and he preached and... To his dismay, they believed God, not to God's dismay. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published to Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, from the violence that is in his hands. They had a a citywide fast, an earnest fast before God, because they believed God, and they responded in repentance and expressed that through fasting. And God averted judgment on Nineveh for their very great sins. So fasting can be an expression of, of repentance and earnestness before the Lord. And we see in Scripture so many wonderful results of fasting. The church in Antioch sends out Saul and Barnabas and they change history. The Ninevites avoid judgment. Ahab saves his kingdom. Ezra is able to return to Jerusalem and dedicate the people to God. Jehoshaphat avoided annihilation, as did Esther. Daniel prays for the restoration of Israel, fasts and prays, and is answered by Gabriel, the, the great angel himself. And there are contemporary examples of the results of fasting as well. We've talked in the past about the amazing revival in Korea. In 1884, John Piper talks about this in his book, A Hunger for God. There was only one Protestant church. Over a hundred years, the next hundred years, there were 30,000 churches started. That's an average of 300 new churches a year for 100 years. At the end of the 20th century, 30% of the population are believers. And God has used prayer and prayer and fasting to bring this great revival. It's all of grace. He's the one who chooses to do it, but he is pleased to honor prayer and, and to know the Korean church is to know a praying, fasting church under one uh, denomination the churches under the Overseas Missionary Society, more than 20,000 people in their denomination have completed at one point a 40-day fast. Can you imagine that? Having that many folks? Usually they go to the prayer houses in the mountains and seek the Lord. 
God has been pleased to do wonders. He answers our prayers. But fasting has a reward that's both, both internal and external. It's both answering our prayers and God responding to what we ask for, but also working in our own souls. There's a reward in prayer and fasting that is not just the reward of asking for God's purposes to be accomplished, and that is a great reward, to be part of what God's doing in the earth. To participate in that is a great privilege and reward for us to be part of that through prayer, through fasting and prayer. But there's also what he does in our own hearts through fasting. There's a reward that is an internal reward in that there's a fresh enjoyment of God, a fresh dedication to God, a fresh consecration to God. I think that's what was going on when Jesus fasted in Matthew 4. You guys perhaps know that story. At the beginning of his ministries, after he's baptized, the Spirit of God leads him into the desert, into the wilderness. And he fasts 40 days and 40 nights. Goes without food. And I believe that that experience of Jesus paralleled Israel's journey in the wilderness for 40 years. And and speaking of that journey in the wilderness, God says, or Moses says this, God through Moses says this in Deuteronomy chapter 8. I think we have this to put up. He says, and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God allowed them to hunger when they were in the desert, and then he met their needs with the manna to teach them bread isn't how you live. Regular food does not bring true life. God alone is the one who brings life. And so when Jesus goes into the wilderness and hungers for 40 days and 40 nights, it says this of him in Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, of course. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Can you imagine the temptation at that point? 40 days, 40 nights, you are very hungry. If you are the Son of God, since you're so powerful and beloved of God, just command these stones and to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it says. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Fasting is a poignant reminder of that truth that we need for our own soul's sake. We need to be reminded that man does not live by bread alone. Yes, indeed, we are physical. We need bread and water to sustain us. But true life does not come through bread alone. True life is found in the Lord. And fasting tells our own soul that that is true. God is my life, not food. I don't live to eat. I live for God. And I express that in fasting. And I express to God that we love Him and value Him and His kingdom more than anything else. That's our true life. Cornelius Plantinga says about fasting and this truth that self-indulgence is the enemy of gratitude and self-discipline usually its friend and generator. That is why gluttony is a deadly sin. The early desert fathers believed that a person's appetites are linked, full stomachs 
and jaded palates take the edge from our hunger and thirst for righteousness. They spoil the appetite for God. Oh, God's given us something that will help us in this way. A gift for our own soul's sake. Fasting. That we might remind ourselves, man doesn't live by bread alone. But by the word of the Lord, by knowing Him, the kingdom is more important than my next meal. We have this gift that is given to us. A blessing, an invitation from the Lord. Spurgeon says of their corporate fast, Charles Spurgeon, the the 19th century pastor, our seasons of fasting and prayer at the tabernacle have been high days indeed. Never has heaven's gates stood wider. Never have our hearts been near the central glory. This is what the Lord invites us to in fasting. This is the reward that he speaks of in Matthew chapter 6. He calls us to fast, not to be seen by men, not to be praised by men. That is such a shallow, temporary reward. And we've been learning about that in in this past three paragraphs, that we mustn't do these things for the mere praise of men. The hypocrites, they fast and they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen. Their whole purpose of fasting in that culture and at that time was to look good before others, to get praise from men, to say, oh, you're, you're so holy, you fast regularly. And they totally missed the reward that God has for them and that God has for us. So Jesus tells us, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face. That was the normal way that you prepared yourself in that day. Basically, brush your teeth, comb your hair, wash your face. Look normal when you fast. Why? So that you're not trying to impress others, but that your heart might be on the Lord. That your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. We've been talking about that. Our Father who is in secret, who sees all things, and knows all things, and is good, and will reward Things done in secret for Him. And the promise in your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And the reward will be a heart for God. A joy in Him and His ways. And an answer to our prayers according to His will. So as we close, I want to ask some questions of us as a church. The band could come up during this time. Some questions. I think we have these to put up on the overhead. First, will you repent of the fear of fasting and receive it as a gift? I ask myself this question too. Will I repent of the fear of fasting and receive it as a gift? To have a new way of looking at fasting. It's an opportunity. It's an invitation based on grace. We do not merit anything. Before the Lord, the Lord has given us his son to live and to die for our sins, to pay for our sins completely. And then he was raised again from the dead, victorious over sin and death. And he's offered freely to any and all who would turn from sin and receive him as Savior and Lord. It's a free gift. We don't earn anything, but... We deepen our enjoyment and our participation in what he's doing as we practice these means of grace. Let us repent of the fear of fasting and receive it as a gift 
based on grace, not to merit, but to enjoy God and get the greater reward. Will we first repent of our fear of fasting and receive it as a gift? Have our minds changed in how we see fasting? Will you prayerfully plan and practice fasting? Moving from just an idea to a practice. To think through what you can do. What does your schedule look like? What is your health situation? What can you do? To start to take small steps. So I would not recommend that you start a 40-day fast tomorrow. What I would recommend is maybe this week you do a one-meal fast. And in that time, if you can, find a quiet place to go and pray. And to attach a purpose to that fast. That's very important when you fast. Not just to fast generally. But we see in Scripture, when there's fasting, there is purpose to it. So, I'm sure you can think of lots of purposes. I, I'm going to start practicing this more regularly myself. And I, I don't think I'll lose my reward because I'm not saying this to impress. I don't think. Uh, my desire is to start taking one day a week, uh, throughout each week, and on each of those days, each week, to have a particular purpose. So my, the first week of the month, I'm, I'm seeking to fast with just a desire to deepen my walk with God, to know Him better. Second week for my family, that they might walk in His ways. Third week for the church. Fourth week for the harvest. So each of those fasts, there's a purpose. And, if, in, and to take time during that, those days or those meals just to find some time just to pray and seek the Lord. So perhaps that's the step that you need to take, to start small, to be careful when you do it, be aware of your health situation. If you can't, because of health reasons, that's okay, be released. This is voluntary. This is something we get to do, not something we have to do. But to be careful, to stay hydrated, to stay warm, brush your teeth, uh, be aware of your health, and come off your fast slowly. It's, it's not good for your body if you do, especially an extended fast. Like all of a sudden, you know, you said, well, at sundown, I'm going to break my fast. And you, okay, all right, it's 6.35, and you raid the refrigerator and stuff yourself. That's not good for you. You want to come off a fast slowly, lightly, a little bit of carbohydrates at first, and you can read further on that. But be careful. So will you, will you receive this as a gift? Will you? Prayerfully plan and practices, taking small steps. Will you join me and our church in regular fasting in these different ways and whatever might serve you? Recognizing that this is something that's to be a regular part of our walk with God. And it's a gift to us. One thing that I'm hoping to do, planning to do, uh, we as a church have had corporate prayer times on the fifth Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday of the month, whenever there's a fifth one. There's a fifth one every quarter, every three months. And so what I'm planning to do is to reinstitute that. And on the fifth Thursday that we have, any fifth Thursday, the next one is in April, I believe, that we have a corporate fast for that day. And that you are invited to participate. You don't have to, but invited to that. And we spend time that day fasting. There is so much we need the Lord for. And there's lots of purpose for us. I, I know one thing I want to fast for as a church is for the harvest. God, God's heart is to reach people who don't know Him, that they might know Him and enjoy Him and live for His glory. He wants to show His glory. He wants His glory to be enjoyed in the greater Haverhill area so we can seek Him for that reason. We 
have been given this wonderful building as a, as a, uh, a help in accomplishing our mission. We need to trust the Lord to be able to buy the building by next March. You know what? It's going to take a miracle. God has supplied our needs in the past, though. So there's another thing we can be fasting. There's, there's, we can be fasting for our children to know the Lord. There's just so many things we can do. But this April, we will plan to have a corporate fast, and then we will conclude here in the evening. We will pray together, worship together, and then have communion together, and then break our fast together for those who are fasting with a meal together. So that will be in April. We want to be a people who have our eyes on God and this wonderful reward he promises to us as we participate in this means of grace. So I'm praying for you, praying for us, that we might grow and walk in these things. Let's, let's conclude in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the gift of fasting. And I pray, Lord, would you help us, would you help us to put away misconceptions of fasting and to hear your call, your invitation to enjoy our reward in you as we use and enjoy this gift. Lord, what reward has promised us to deepen our walks with you, to become more like you, to serve your kingdom purposes. Thank you for that. And now I pray you would lead us in application, Lord, each of us thinking of a small step to take, that as we walk in these things, Lord, you might bless bless us, make us a blessing, and glorify your name, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Just encourage you too, as, as we worship, just to be thinking, what is one small step to take as we trust God in this way?